0: my first crazy thought was like that's like the size of a moon itself maybe now i have
1: to look that up tell me this the moon doesn't weigh anything
0: (laughs) 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 okay pedantic google page or whatever yeah
1: (laughs) i guess The mass of the moon, which might be what you mean to ask, man, they're bitchy, is approximately 7.3476 times 10 to the 22nd kilograms.
0: Hey, everybody. Welcome to No Railings, a podcast where we look at mostly movies, maybe someday TV shows and other media through the vague lens of public health. And safety. And safety. I'm Molly. And I'm Ty. And we are so excited to welcome you to episode one of No Railings on the Death Star, appropriately about Star Wars. Well, this episode is anyway. Yeah, well, yeah, I mean, the the whole thing's not about Star Wars, it's going to be about like other cool movies, like The Descent and also Day After Tomorrow. Um, one of those movies is cooler than the other, obviously. Oh, well, well. I
1: mean, well, we would agree, <laughs> but also disagree.
0: <laughs> As... Pro, <laughs>
1: probably just in the opposite direction. <laughs> 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 we have a lot of movies we're planning on watching, and uh, eventually some TV shows, maybe some comic books. I don't know. Who's to say? But yeah, got a pretty long list. Yeah.
0: I mean, I guess we can just hop right on to it. Feels kind of weird to summarize Star Wars, because it's uh, everywhere and at all times. Mm-hmm. First of all,
1: for Star Wars, we did episodes four, five, and six. Yes, the original trilogy. And honestly, I don't feel bad not going over the plot. I'm just kind of, I assume at some point you've seen it. Yeah. You either care more about it or you don't. It's who's to say, but, uh, but we all kind of, we're there. <laughs> yeah, I mean, full...
0: Full confession, I'm going to lose some cred for this. I did not watch Star Wars until I was a fully formed adult. So uh, to be fair, I think I watched one when I was way too young to remember it. Mm. But um, Mm -hmm. yeah, I didn't watch Star Wars until I was a real adult. And by then, these particular episodes were bad for me because I didn't have that kind of lens of nostalgia on them. And, sure. you know I appreciate them because I get it they were like original sci-fi Western groundbreaking mm-hmm. in so many different ways incredibly 70s perfect love it
1: yeah no I don't I don't have like great affection for Star Wars either I, again for all the reasons that you listed I think it, they're great movies in that way but um but I also didn't grow up on them so I, I think I was maybe 18 before I ever watched them and by then it was just because I was tired of not having seen them. Oh, yeah, and I I did that basic thing of, like, making a spectacle of
0: watching them where I was like, I'm going to watch these movies. Who wants to come over and experience them with me? Who wants to Mm – I'm going to update my Facebook status about it all the time.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, no, I think I was just, like – I was at a friend's house for a sleepover, and the first time I ever watched it, that we were trying to figure out what we were going to see, and she mentioned Star Wars, and I was like, oh, wait, this is perfect. No one ever wants to watch this with me because they've all already seen it enough. Mm. There's actually a lot of movies like that. Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind is similar. Oh, oh, really? That's a good one, too. Haven't seen it. Nobody wants to watch it with
0: me. I've seen it once. It was, it was really good. I liked it. Weird to see Jim Carrey in such a serious role. <laughs>
1: <laughs> anyway, so yes, our experience with Star Wars is middling, medium. Yeah. Probably pretty average, actually. Not exactly polarizing. But that's... You know what that's irrelevant to? It's public
0: health concepts. (laughs) (laughs) Now, that is true. So we each picked two questions or concepts or thoughts to explore, and then we're going to share those with you. So my two were wildfires on Endor. Why don't they happen? And also, Mm -hmm. as the titular title suggests, why are there no railings on the Death Star?
1: So I actually got deep into Death Star lore on accident. Because the very first question I had was, how do you feed the crew on the Death Star? Do you have a Death Star farm? And I was very excited by this notion for a while. And then my second question was, what actually is going to happen to the forest moon of Endor when the Death Star crashes into it and explodes in in low orbit? So those were my questions. What's what's up with the Death Star? Seems dangerous. (laughs) I mean, the name suggests... Danger. Yeah, at the very least, it does what it says on the tin.
0: (laughs) Okay, I think you should start with one of yours so that way we can end with no railings.
1: Good, good, good. Good, good, good. Can do. So yeah, railings aside, there's a lot of questions to be asked about the Death Star. But let's talk about the Death Star for a minute, shall we? Oh boy, let's. Here's what's up with it. It is big. Okay. It is entirely man-made. Yep. It is a genocide weapon. It is. And it's staffed almost entirely by military personnel. but it does appear to have maybe native fauna on it like it's got continents it's planet or well it's moon sized at least it has continents and it is big enough to have if not native introduced critters living in it, as we saw in the trash compactor scene. Mm -hmm. So that made me start wondering, is there enough organic matter in the Death Star to create sort of an ecosystem, and does that come from farming? The Death Star has a huge population, obviously, it's moon-sized, and so to keep it running has to have, like, a lot of food generated, right? Uh, How could it possibly sustain itself without? So I thought, gosh, there really must be farms. On the Death Star. How cool would that be? Like we're little farmer stormtroopers troopers wearing straw hats and carrying rakes. Yeah, but can you imagine that recruitment process? That would be fantastic though, right? <laughs> we're recruiting
0: farmers for the Death Star. I'm sorry, the what? The the Death Star. It's nothing. Don't Do worry about it. Don't even worry
1: about it. No one? It's fine. You know what? Do you want to go to a farm in the Sky? That okay, that would sell me. <laughs> yeah, I mean <laughs> For sure. <laughs> um Sky Farm? Absolutely. Death Star, harder sell. But uh, out front, I was wrong. There is no farming in the Death Star. Oh. Almost immediately, I learned that there was no farming on the Death Star. And I was honestly very disappointed by that. Because what a <laughs> bummer. Okay, so the lack of farms, that's, that's canon somehow. What's the... The lack of farms is canon. Okay. So I have a book. It is called The Star Wars Death Star Imperial DS-1 Orbital Battle Station Owner's Technical Manual. <laughs> and I bought it at Barnes & Noble. <laughs> it's by Writer Wyndham. Chris Reef and Chris Travis. And the conceit of the book is that General Grand Moff Tarkin is writing a diary, and most of what he thinks about at night seems to just be how cool his giant car is, which, to be fair, is pretty true. Mm. Uh, But it is pretty informative, actually, because it very quickly gets to this passage. The crew ate in a large open room full of tables and benches. Meal trays were delivered by droids, and the fare was cultivated from the Death Star's food and water synthesization plants. Mm. The officer mess halls featured more secluded dining facilities, and the food came from huge stores of refrigerated and dried goods imported from Imperial cargo ships. Okay.
0: Right. Does it say they were like, oh, synthetically made apples, or are we talking like
1: synthetically made cubes of nutritionally dense food based on what i could read from the rest of like life on the death star i imagine probably it's the latter more than the former mm. uh because the only other things that you can do on the death star besides run around in formation with guns is go to the gym that's the only recreation that's provided on the death star and so i have to just assume that pretty much 100% of the crew and you know underling's diet is basically soylent (laughs) and probably not even the flavored kind (laughs) oh god hopefully it's not version
0: one soylent am i right (laughs) okay that's a
1: weird soylent joke uh the worst was when a friend was like i don't want to buy soylent and so we looked up a recipe and made our own and honest to god it looked like roofing tar i couldn't even try it. it was apparently it was like Greens and just a whole bunch of blueberries and some other stuff. But again, it was black Mm. and viscous. And it wasn't an attractive prospect I couldn't bring myself. Okay, so the underlings get get the nutritionally dense cubes. The fancy guys get food. Underlings get nutrition cubes. The fancy guys appear to get, from what I could tell, pretty much canned beans. (laughs) TV (laughs) meals. (laughs) They said refrigerator though, right? So like... (laughs) <laughs> well, refrigeration is necessary, but, I mean, freezing keeps you longer, you know? Yeah, okay, yeah. Yeah. So the Death Star actually is supposed to have three years worth of supplies on store. Okay, that's a lot. Um, which will come up a little bit later. Sweet. But three years of supplies makes me think that even the fancy feasts the officers are getting are probably something closer to the idea of a TV dinner. Get a little a little brownie It kind of puffs up in the microwave as it steams <laughs> God, I loved kids' cuisines. I know, those are the best You can open the sprinkles and put them on the brownie And sometimes they'll kind of flow into the mac and cheese And you're like, this is kind of gross, but I'm a kid, so I don't care Yeah, <laughs> those are the days Yeah mm. So, of course, there is no farming They are not generating their own food It does have to come from somewhere, though And three years' worth of it has to come from somewhere mm-hmm. So where exactly is it coming from? obviously the Empire is an empire and a galactic one at that. So it's not exactly like they're lacking for resources, one must think. Mm. But I kind of assumed at some point they would find it difficult to feed the Death Star. And so I thought I'd look into that. The US does not have a Death Star. I'm just going to get that right out there. Okay, <laughs> just <laughs> disclaimer. The US does not have a Death Star, but they do have the next best thing. Uh, which are naval warships. Oh, okay. (laughs) And I thought, well, gosh, this seems like a pretty good analog to figure out and then scale up and see how that all probably would go. So I found an article on stripes.com titled, What Does It Take to Feed an Aircraft Carrier on a Combat Mission? About 173,000 meals which I'd like to posit is isn't a catchy name, but is an informative one. Mm -hmm. It profiles a Nimitz-class aircraft carrier called the USS Harry S. Truman. And using the numbers I got from this article, I did some, unfortunately, calculator-heavy, but still very basic math, and I got the (laughs) following numbers. Uh, I'll be rounding many of these figures because some of them get very, very large, and I don't just want to say numbers all day long. Yep. Uh, So here it is. USS Harry Truman has a crew of about 5,500 people, 5,500 people. The Death Star has a crew, I'm rounding up to, about 1.2 million people. Oh my god. Or rather, a population (laughs) of about 1.2 million people, making it 364 times bigger, give or take. The delivery amount that the USS Harry Truman receives every 7 to 10 days was said to be between 400,000 and 1 million pounds. So I kind of split the difference there for all the math I was doing because, hey, the Death Star is not real and I can do this. (laughs) So I called it about 700K, which would bring the Death Star's approximate weekly delivery amount to 254,800,000 pounds of food weekly. Okay. Uh, This is not counting its three-year supply of stores. The three-year supply of stores is nearly 40 billion pounds. Okay. (laughs) It's an insane amount of food. So cool. 40 billion pounds plus almost, you know, 300 million every week. Neat. Now we know how much it needs. How do they get it? And honestly, the answer is they get it pretty easily. According to the World Food Clock, based on statistics from 2014, Earth produces 7,605 metric tons of food in a minute. Oh. Consumes about 5,133 metric tons of that, resulting in about 2,472 metric tons of waste. Again, this is in a minute. Damn. Yeah, no, it's a lot. The Earth actually produces quite a lot. More than honestly I was expecting, but I don't, I didn't have a frame of reference. (laughs) Right. So that would mean in a year... Earth alone could feed and then stock for the three required years 73 Death Stars without changing the amount of food that does actually get consumed. In a year? In a year. Whoa. Okay. Got it. Wow. Yes. Okay. Now, there's a whole host of reasons why food gets wasted that aren't just buying broccoli and forgetting it in the fridge but i'm not a food scientist and i don't want to get into those specifics Mm -mm. farm to table i think does well enough without me trying to guess so probably if you were going to be a little more specific you'd shave a couple death stars off worth of you know of the final count a few of the 73 (laughs) a few fewer than 73 i know really take a big hit on that so probably we could comfortably i'll just throw out a number we could probably comfortably say 60 death stars without changing consumption habits cool yeah anyway so the death star does not have any hydroponic farms but it doesn't seem to be hurting for supplies so now i'm just gonna say that it's a bummer it doesn't have farming on it for the sake of staff mental health because green spaces are nice Mm-hmm. But then I'll maybe wrap around to saying maybe it's not so much of a bummer because it would mean that many, many farmers would just get obliterated for the sin of doing farming.
0: Yeah. Like, oof. Also kind of a bummer that because they're imperial evil, they're probably like, hey, planet, you're our slaves now. Give us all your food. Pillaging. Yeah. yeah. Empires are good at that. I mean, yeah. Although it's kind of weird <laughs> to think of like, or moon-sized genocide machine that enslaves planets. Although I guess actually it even makes more sense because they can be like, give us
1: food or we'll blow up your planet. So. Honestly, the Empire doesn't seem that strapped for supplies. No, 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 no. To be honest, since they are so big, since there are so many planets under their rule, probably it's actually not that difficult to get them to give up a couple supplies here and there. They could probably source from many, many places without really impacting local economies all that much well yeah and as they're floating
0: through space i'm sure they just like stop by whichever planets are in the empire and say hey it's food tax time give us our 50 bushels of wheat and our 60 cows or whatever you Can know kind
1: of food barge up here yeah,
0: yeah. exactly yeah <laughs> i'm just imagining like a old-timey like world war ii style propaganda poster that's like think of them when you waste your food and it's like a crying death star
1: a crying stormtrooper. Oh yeah, crying stormtrooper. <laughs> yeah. Or like you can't see their faces, so he's just sit- he's just real sad. His shoulders are all slumpy, and he's sitting alone in the cafeteria, like, oh beans. <laughs> it's not even beans. It's just the nutra slurry we have to eat all the time for fun. For fun. <laughs> yeah. Life on the Death Star, as described by Death Star Imperial DS1 Orbital Battle Station and an Owner's Manual, <laughs> sounds lame. Yeah, not even a ping pong table. Not even a ping pong table. So yeah, no firming (laughs) in the Death Star. Huge bummer. There you have it. Cool.
0: Well, you want to hear about some wildfires on Endor? Mm Hmm. Do I ever. So, all throughout episode 6, I keep seeing all these blasters hitting trees and vehicle exploding, and I kept thinking, why isn't this forest burning down? So, I mean, it kind of makes sense, right? Like, there's literal fire in this forest hitting trees and stuff, and it doesn't seem to affect anything really. Yeah. So the first thing I decided I needed to understand is what kind of forest we're dealing with, because the type of forest, the type of climate, the type of fuel available is going to affect your forest fires. Sure, sure. Oh, can I guess?
1: Yes. Because it kind of looks like uh, Redwoods, doesn't it? Ooh, good
0: guess. Yes, it is filmed in California's Redwood National Park. (laughs) Ha ha, I am very smart. Which is technically a rainforest. Oh. So rainforests are pretty hard to burn. <laughs> Not impossible to burn, as I will let you know more about later, but
1: it's hard. And as I will let you know.
0: What? <laughs> are you going to burn down the rainforest?
1: Spoiler alert. Oh. You can you can <laughs> do a lot worse than that. <laughs> I thought that was a threat. I thought I'm... you were threatening to burn down a rainforest. <laughs> I mean, I've already, you know, that's my Wednesday plans, Molly. I've got some time between here and there. <laughs> okay.
0: Um, <laughs> in addition, it's uh, pretty hard to burn down a, a non-dry tree. Most of the lumber you get at your local Safeway before you go camping is kiln-dried before it's burned. Mm. And I'm sure anybody who's ever gone into the wilderness with your local survival fiend or, like, quote-unquote survival fiend has probably heard at least once, ah, we can't burn that, it's too wet. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yeah, certainly. So what makes Redwoods so darn special? They are already pretty forest fire resistant because they have thick bark and their leafy bits are high away from the ground. And I got a lot of this huh. information from some really cool redwoods based nonprofits, Ooh. Which I will link in the description. Nice. Because there's a lot of them. Turns out people really care about the California redwoods. I know. I mean, they're very pretty. They are pretty. So tall trees means the fuel or the needles are up high, which makes it harder to burn. The bark of redwoods is very thick, at least a foot thick, which protects it, and it has a pretty high water content. Sorry, a foot thick? A foot thick. Wow. I had no idea. Yeah, redwoods are big. If you've never seen a picture of a redwood, like, look it up. They're real big. And a foot is kind of surprising when you think of the size of your normal tree, but redwoods
1: are so much bigger than a normal tree. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Guess I just wasn't thinking in the in the proper scale. hmm <laughs> The needles are broad and flat, which
0: helps them collect fog, which keeps them moist. Hmm. They also have tannin, which is a natural flame retardant, and it gives the redwoods their color, protects them from disease and fungi and in- insects. Hmm. The trees also have very little resin or pitch, which is part of what causes other trees to burn faster.
1: Hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: So, I don't know what kind of wildlife park services there are in Endor, or if climate change is a valid concern for them. <laughs> Probably not so much, I would guess. Yeah, but there are a few caveats to all of this with our modern redwood forests. Sure. So, with climate change, we're getting hotter, drier conditions, which can make an area more susceptible to forest fire. With dry vegetation, very easy to start a fire. The campfire and Thomas Fire in California that were a couple years ago started because power lines sparked over dry grasses. Oh, sure. Yeah. In addition, we have a lot of fire prevention strategies that have led to more undergrowth buildup and an increase in tree disease. So dead trees Mm. are more fuel. More undergrowth is more fuel. That means that when the fires do happen, they're way more intense. Did the fire prevention strategies also lead into the tree disease or are they two separate factors here? It's a little column A, little column B because... Tree diseases are becoming increasingly common because of climate change. Mm-hmm. It's just easier for certain diseases that are, like, temperature-sensitive or seasonally dependent to be able to pass on. Sure. Trees that are nearly dead or actually dead that would be burned up in a normal cycle of forest fires are just hanging out. Being preserved. And- right. And so, you know, the dead trees can also probably house or spread disease. Either way... There's more trees in general in some of these areas or more plants in general in some of these areas that lets the diseases pass easier. Sure. That's my kind of best, I don't want to say it's a guess because it's not a guess, but my best
1: hypothesis based on my research. Best understanding based on what you, yeah. Yes. So in
0: summary, all fires need three things. They need fuel, they need oxygen, they need heat. We can assume that there's oxygen because nobody's dying.
1: Mm Mm-hmm. Easy one to make.
0: Yeah. (laughs) The fuel that is present is likely wet and hard to burn because they don't seem to be struggling with climate change or rampant forest fires. Sure. And uh, considering stuff isn't constantly catching on fire with blaster blasts, Mm -hmm. it seems like the blasters might not actually be that hot. So Hmm. probably not even hot enough to cause a fire. Huh. I know what you're thinking. Hey, Molly. Didn't the Amazon
1: rainforest just catch on fire? Hey, Molly. Yeah, Didn't the Amazon rainforest just catch on fire? It did.
0: Yeah. Uh, good point.
1: Thank mm-hmm. you for bringing it up. I was just thinking that.
0: <laughs> so, <laughs> yes. In 2019, there were some seriously intense fires across the Brazilian Amazon, up to 60% more from the same time the previous year. Hmm. So there's a lot of reasons for this that are very complicated and political. The Brazilian Amazon has seen a lot of deforestation to make way for farming or for an industry. There's a lot of illegal logging and illegal mining that happens in the Amazon that causes mm. people to cut down swaths of land and do bad stuff for the environment in general. There's also a political history, at least in recent years, of not caring about the Amazon, really. <laughs> at least in Brazil's president. So there's there's a lot to unpack there. Far more than is worth covering in an hour-long podcast. Sure, But... Some interesting stuff I found from the National Geographic is that paleoecologists, people who study ancient environments, found that burning parts of the forest floors have been happening for thousands of years. Not, again, not this wholesale destruction that we're seeing now to make room for cities and cows and, you know, your illegal gold mines. It's more burning of undergrowth in order to grow... You know, stuff for the local peoples of the Amazon. Mm -hmm. And in the place of these undergrowth, varieties of local crops were planted and poor soil was enriched with compost and charcoal, which sort of allowed these areas to thrive. Sure. So this practice over time has led to some areas of the forest being particularly vulnerable to fires. Hmm. Trees on sites where there's been a long history of pre-Columbian people have less green canopy and a lower water content. This makes sense, because less canopy means less water, because the canopy basically blocks the light and the heat from the sun, so removing it results in dry and warm. Sure. So, in summary, and its current state, Endor is probably safe from forest fires. If they continue this wanton and wholesale destruction of their forest to make room for imperial forces, then they might have a climate change situation on their hands where they have to worry about it. Hey, I've got great news, though. Hey, tell me. They don't have to worry about it. This, uh, this
1: feels like a lead into bad news. It's terrible news. <laughs> okay, tell me more. <laughs> the forest moon of Endor could not possibly have survived the destruction of the Death Star. Okay, that seems bad. It's terrible, actually. <clears throat> yeah, no, it's very, very not good. Not a not a safe situation whatsoever. Um, why? Why? How? Well, so I'm going to back it up for a minute. Okay, <laughs> and I'm going to tell you just a little bit about totally failing to research. My second topic, which was basically based on the idea that, so early in the movie, number one, uh, Darth Vader goes ahead and destroys Alderaan. And I thought, well, gosh, that seems like a bad thing for its solar system. He's essentially, they use the Death Star and it blows it into rubble and now it's kind of just a, an asteroid field and, and there's nothing left and that's, that's no good and I thought, the solar system surely is going to be affected by this, right? And so I started Googling based on the question what would happen to Earth if Mars just got bodied like that. Mm. I couldn't really find much in the way of true scientific discussion about that beyond a couple of, like, Reddit and Quora threads where people with PhDs behind their name would answer. Mm. But pretty much every one of them came to the conclusion that, you know, space is just a little too big for it to matter. Huh. The biggest thing that earth would probably experience is maybe a couple more meteors would fall than usual or you know after a couple millennia what used to be mars would probably redistribute itself into a new asteroid belt but generally space is big enough that if it all went flying we we probably wouldn't get hit the biggest and baddest situation i saw posited was if some horrible thing just cue balled mars straight into earth like on a pool table okay and that... the two planets themselves collided i mean yeah that's that's like obviously bad <laughs> yeah no i didn't feel the need to research past that i kind of figured right. that was that was a, a sort of foregone conclusion um but it did occur to me i haven't seen episode nine yet but it definitely they put a lot of emphasis in the trailer of big shards to the death star just sitting on the horizon of this planet right? Yes, very cool. And I thought it's a very cool scene, but that seems like maybe a planet running into another planet a little bit, right? Mm, yes. Why would this other planet still be here? So I started looking into what would happen to the force moon of Endor when the Death Star got destroyed. Okay. And it actually did, uh, it turned up some pretty good results. I'm pleased to say it's a uh, delightfully apocalyptic. (laughs) Noted fan magazine Business Insider printed an article headlined scientists are backing up the most terrifying fan theory in the Star Wars universe. Oh. It polled a number of physicists about what would happen to the fourth moon of Endor when the Death Star gets destroyed and generally they agreed it was going to be you know at the very least it would wipe out the side of the planet facing the ship but one guy Dave Minton went a little further he wrote a whole four page paper with diagrams. (gasps) Oh my god. I know, it's actually delightful. He posited that the Death Star is probably being held in low orbit by the satellite dish that the rebels had to destroy on the ground. And then said that that dish's destruction would probably drop the mass of the Death Star onto the surface. This would have the same effect as a massive asteroid strike and would result in things like the whole ocean instantly vaporizing a global firestorm. All bad stuff. But... Okay. We, on Earth have geologic evidence of what an asteroid strike is actually like in the moment that it happens. Ooh. And so I thought I'd just go ahead and see what that would be like. We're talking like the the thing that killed the dinosaurs kind of deal. Mm Mm-hmm. The Chicxulub impact event is what it's called. So the big one, the asteroid that killed the dinosaurs, all that good stuff, uh, landed in the Gulf of Mexico. And we have pretty good geologic evidence of what that does and what it looked like. And based on, I'm going to slightly paraphrase this, but this information comes from the Lunar and Planetary Institute on a page called the Chicxulub Impact Event. I'm just going to go through a little bit what it was like when that happened. Oh boy. Okay, I'm ready. Here we go. The Chicxulub Impact Event was a about 100 million megaton blasts that devastated the Gulf of Mexico region. The blast generated a core of superheated plasma in excess of 10,000 degrees. Although that thermal pulse would have been relatively short-lived, a handful of minutes, it would have been lethal for nearby life. The Chicxulub impact event produced a shock wave and air blast that radiated across the seas, over coastlines, and deep into the continental interior. Winds far in excess of 1,000 km per hour were possible near the impact site although they decreased with distance. The pressure pulse and winds would have scoured soils and shredded vegetation and any animals living in nearby ecosystems. An initial estimate of the area damaged by an air blast was a radius of approximately 1,500 kilometers. That debris landed within minutes in the Gulf of Mexico and the Caribbean region. Life on the continental landscape and marine seafloor was buried beneath impact ejecta that was several hundred meters thick near the impact site. Because the impact occurred at sea, tsunamis radiated across the Gulf of Mexico, crashing onto nearby coastlines and radiating further across the Proto-Caribbean and Atlantic basins. Estimates of the sizes vary, ranging somewhere between 50 and 300 meters high when they hit the Gulf shores. These tsunamis may have penetrated more than 100 kilometers inland before the backwash swept continental debris back into the Gulf of Mexico. The impact also generated a seismic pulse, roughly equivalent to a magnitude 10 earthquake. Material from the vaporized impactor and target rocks rose from the Chicxulub crater in a vapor-rich plume that accelerated through the Earth's atmosphere and began to reaccrete to the top of the atmosphere on ballistic trajectories. As that material hurtled back into the atmosphere, it heated it up in some locations generating wildfires. The atmosphere of the Earth was choked with dust completely obscuring the surface of the Earth from sunlight and shutting down photosynthetic life systems. Even after the largest particles settled to the surface of the Earth, chemical constituents such as sulfate aerosols and greenhouse warming gases remained in the atmosphere, generating climatic effects that persisted long after the impact. Now, the Chicxulub asteroid sounds like bad news. That's a lot. It's a lot. Yeah, it was a lot to take in. (laughs) <laughs> its size is uncertain and I don't know why there's such variability here, but it's estimated at being between 11 and 81 kilometers across. Why the range? I just don't know.
0: What's the what's the size of the Death Star in comparison?
1: 120. Oh god. Okay, great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So in conclusion, get wrecked, Ewoks. <laughs> oh my god. Yeah. There's just nothing left. Okay global firestorms i mean that's how you burn a rainforest down i tell you what well and a lot of a lot of that (laughs)
0: stuff would have happened so fast like it would have been like all at once it would have been basically immediate ear busting sound immediate Mm -hmm. fires probably yep immediate winds like three minutes later insanely huge waves and Mm -hmm. then like five minutes later if not sooner just dust
1: everywhere like just everywhere
0: that (laughs) like i mean those those Minutes are guesses at best, but I feel like I can't be that far off.
1: Surely not. No, I saw a graphic, I think it was a, a little gif, of the spread of wildfires as they believe they happened in the around the Earth. And there was one that started around the impact site, and then there was another one that seemed they seemed to think started in Australia and then moved with wind currents sort of across the globe to the point where they're just... There were so few places that didn't have wildfires. Mm. I also read a little bit about how they keep finding soot deposits all over the place from what they believe the wildfires were. Now, because soot isn't airborne particulate, it was hard to tell whether it's there because a fire was there or if it was there because it was carried there from a fire. So they can't use that as, you know, an absolute certainty when determining the size. But they basically said they were finding this Everywhere.
0: Hmm.
1: Wow. Yeah. That's. Huh. Mm-hmm. I, I guess I just never really
0: thought that hard about what death by asteroid would be like. <laughs> uh, it sounds
1: quick, at least. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I guess yeah. Some good news. <laughs> yeah. I mean, definitely scary in the moment, but um, not uh, not prolonged.
0: No, no, no. I mean, at least not for the Ew- Ewoks on like half of the planet. The other half. Maybe. I don't know. I yeah. It depends on
1: how their atmosphere works
0: too. I mean, a lot a lot to consider. But either way, bad. The Endor is definitely not existing.
1: Oh, Endor's gone. Like I said, there's a spread of opinions. They pulled a series of physicists to ask what this would be like. And there were some who basically posited that the Death Star would just get sort of shattered and rain down as a big meteor shower, but of kind of smaller particulates, which would just sort of exfoliate one half of the planet not so much the other but I mean the Ewoks are there no matter what you can always see the, the Death Star in the shots where the Ewoks are so they're they're not getting away from it basically the canon
0: now confirms that the Death Star was not obliterated into a million pieces yeah. and straight up landed on
1: Endor. Just landed just fell down now we gotta watch the movie and see if they address it I know I think probably not I doubt they do. To be fair it does look really cool. <laughs> <That's> so cool. <laughs> All right. Before it exploded, though, it still wasn't very safe. Circling back around to the uh,
0: life on the Death Star really sucks. Yes. Let's talk about the fact that there are no railings on the Death Star. Not a one. So I've worked in safety before, and when you work certain types of jobs and you're trained to notice certain things, you notice them everywhere. I've gotten a lot of razzin from friends for pointing out, like, <laughs> Fire extinguishers that are not up to code or whatever. (laughs) You know, totally normal and average observations like that. So one of the first things I noticed on this movie is that there's just no dang safety rails. (laughs) Apparently and unsurprisingly, I was not the first one to notice this. Fair. Yeah. Family Guy did a bit about it, which I thought was honestly kind of hilarious Hmm. because they have, you know, the two guys chatting and they're like hey man what's up with the lack of lack of railings and the other guy's like get this they don't want railings because they don't want us to lean which <laughs> like <laughs> if you've ever worked a terrible
1: retail job oh boy and i have yeah i'm sure you've heard just you that's
0: you can clean
1: i had somebody tell me that in like a 200 square foot store that i'd already finished cleaning i was like Ooh. lady what are you seeing <laughs> that oh, i'm God. not uh, again,
0: if we want to talk about whole other episodes, there's a lot to unpack. And just if you can lean, you can clean. But honestly, you know, who who am I to unpack that? Um. So here's the deal, though. Myself and Family Guy might have got it entirely wrong. There may indeed have been safety rails. Because hear me out. On a forum page that said "Inside the World of Star Wars Episode One Fact Book." There are apparently such thing as low-energy traction systems, which prevent people from falling.
1: Oh. Sneaky safety rails.
0: Yeah. So on some of the more iconic scenes of, like, bay doors opening or, like, landing on a pad or whatever, hey, maybe there were indeed safety rails that were just space tech coolness. However, dun-dun-dun, when it comes to classic evil, the lack of rails is canonically intentional
1: now they don't get farms no they don't okay (laughs) no you're telling me they also don't get to not fall off of ledges yes
0: because according to the show on youtube appropriately named the star wars show sure (laughs) they did an episode called Why are there no handrails on Star Wars, how Rogue One recreated classic sets, which further proves how behind I am on this idea that there's no railings on Death Star? Uh Uh-oh. Doug Chang, the production coordinator, literally said there is no health and safety in the evil empire,
1: according to George Lucas himself, which is like a way for him to prove how bad they are. So the empire is just being run like the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory. Like a, a triangle what? The Triangle Shirtwaist Factory? The Triangle... Oh no, I don't understand. Oh, uh, the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory was a, unsurprisingly, shirtwaist factory. Sure. And in, gosh, I'm gonna Google this. It happened in, in Manhattan, uh, New York City, on March 25th, 1911. It is the deadliest industrial disaster in the history of the city. Hmm. And uh, one one of the deadliest in U.S. history, the fire caused the deaths of 146 garment workers, 123 women and girls, and 23 men. A fire broke out on one of the floors, but the company was one of these terrible, terrible sweatshop companies that Basically decided that human lives in exchange for ladies' nice shirts was a fair deal. And they both overworked their employees and also locked them in physically to their sewing station so that they couldn't actually leave. Mm. Now, all of this stuff sort of compounded when something caught on fire and it just was, you know, it was over. The... The podcast My Favorite Murder actually does a really good episode on that, but...
0: Well, there's definitely echoes of that for, like, recent ones, too, with the Bangladeshi worker fire. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So, uh, basically, <sighs> do not trust big companies to keep you safe. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Good yeah. note. Or evil empires.
0: Yeah, or evil empires. So, yeah, makes sense to talk about how bad that is. Yeah. <laughs> And this actually kind of segues into my next point, which is, what about in real life? When Space Force finally becomes real and starts sending people into space, how are we going to protect them from falling off of rails? Since we're hopefully not the evil empire in this scenario. Ha 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 ha.
1: Ha 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 ha. I know. So...
0: Most people will know that OSHA is the federal agency that oversees worker safety. Mm -hmm. And the Occupational uh, Health and Safety Act is one of the original sort of classic first safety regulations that covers almost everyone. Does not cover the self-employed, immediate family members of farm workers... Workplace hazards regulated by another federal agency, like the Mine, Safety, and Health Administration, Department of Energy, Coast Guard. Mm -hmm. And, as of right now anyway, because who knows what's going to happen with the Space Force, OSHA standards do not generally apply to the military with some exceptions. Hmm. Yeah, they would oversee civilians working in the military, and any military regulations also have to be at least as rigorous as OSHA ones. Sure. Uh, But we'll we'll get back to the military later. Let's just start with your average person. What kind of stuff should you expect at your workplace with railings? There's a lot of stuff about, about rails and guarding holes and guarding ledges. It's a lot. <laughs> it's so, so much. If you want to read along at home, try looking at the OSHA Regulation 1926.501 subsection B, subsection 1, 2, 4, and 6. I don't want to read along at home. Oh, don't worry. I'm going to read one out loud to you. Oh, boy. I'm going to read 1926.501b subsection (laughs) 1. Unprotected sides and edges. Uh. Each employee on a walking and working surface, horizontal and vertical surface, with an unprotected side or edge, which is 6 feet 1.8 meters or more above a lower level, shall be protected from falling by the use
1: of guardrail systems, safety net systems, or personal fall arrest systems. Are you suggesting that they would have big ol' circus nets? Uh, They might actually have big old surface nets. (laughs) I forgive the empire now. Yeah. If the way that it goes when you fall off a ledge is you fall safely into a delightful springy circus net like a good, good acrobat. I mean, that's kind of great. Yeah.
0: And you know what? Like, who knows which camera angles we were looking at. Maybe they were just (laughs) off camera the entire time. Very possible. So now
1: we know what they do for recreation. (laughs) They just purposefully fall off of ledges. Hurl (laughs) themselves bodily off of ledges and into those big old dude pits that they just kind of keep around. Mm -hmm. Hopefully not full of weird pit monsters. That's the thing that always surprised me. There's so many just like open pits in the hangars, which seems like a... In addition to being dangerous to walk near, it also seems maybe like a bad financial decision to put big, big holes in the ground next to where you keep all your very expensive flying equipment. Like, what if you taxi into that? That's just a lot of money wasted and a lot of time. I almost looked into the impracticality
0: of how these are all set up because they have like negatively pressured rooms that don't make sense. There's like big gaping holes and weird columns, but that, oh my God, that would have (laughs) been... I would have had to, like, get a degree in architecture (laughs) and, like, aerospace engineering to even begin to guess at why that might be a thing. But I I think even if I got those two degrees, I would learn the answer is because it's not real. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Okay. So maybe there were safety nets. Let's be real here. I doubt it. So, in general, OSHA requires that fall protection be provided if you're higher than 4 feet in general industry workplaces, 5 feet in shipyards, 6 feet in construction industry, and 8 feet on longshoring. And, in addition, they require fall protection to be provided when working over dangerous equipment and machinery, regardless of fall distance. Mm, Yeah, that makes sense. So, rails rails is a common option. Yep. You've probably seen construction workers walking around with harnesses attached to safety lines. Mm Mm-hmm. There you go. But what about the military?
1: What about the military?
0: First and foremost... Again, the uh, regulations must be at least as strong as those with OSHA. And I wanted to find some specific safety regulations online through military websites. And when I did some research, safety.army.mil was broken. Huh. Just fully broken. Telling. And according to someone on Answers.com, no idea if they're right, requirements of the U.S. Army Safety Program do not apply in a garrison environment, which this would probably consider a garrison environment.
1: But,
0: more but. works, which is the Air Force's safety. Uh Uh-huh. Yes. And this led me to an interesting fact. There is a space safety division in the Air Force.
1: There's an entire separate division for space safety. Yes. Uh, They combat space power. Space OSHA. Yes.
0: They combat space power by anticipating, reducing, and preventing mishaps. Okay. Sure. Yeah. And I think combating space power in our current lives is like satellite missiles, sure. space-based spying, mm-hmm. but not like not like fighting asteroids or aliens. I mean, give it time. <laughs> However, like all good rabbit holes, I found the Advancement of Space Safety Institute, the IAASS, established in April of 2004 in the Netherlands. Hmm. It's a nonprofit organization dedicated to furthering international cooperation and scientific advancement in the field of space systems safety. So, we can only hope that this means that as we grow closer to doing cool space shit, we are already a leg in the arena for being safe about it. And also, if you're listening, I-A-A-S-S, and you're hiring, just call me. I'm available. (laughs)
1: I appreciate the foresight. I really do. I mean, so much of scientific advancement has been sort of running headfirst into the walls of wildly impractical and dangerous things. Yeah. Which, to be fair, has gotten us here, but maybe isn't the best idea. So getting kind of like one foot in the door early on, I think, is maybe a smart... It's a good choice. It's a good choice. Yes. Not doing any of those radium girls things anymore. Just gonna kind of... Get out in front of it. <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah, hopefully we can get into space without having to sacrifice a bunch of human lives in the process. I said optimistically. Hmm.
1: Well, here's hoping all of history can be subverted.
0: <laughs> yeah. Oh <my> god. <laughs> but anyway, that's
1: the end of my no railings on the Death Star. Interesting. So no railings are on the Death Star primarily because the Empire wants to make it clear that they don't like you very much. Which, again, yeah, that yeah, does exactly. fit. Like, canonically, it's because yeah. they're evil. Well, sure. Like I said, that kind of fits in with the rest of history, so... But I believe it. No. <laughs> Thinking thing about researching evil empires, fact or fiction, they will be uh, evil. I guess that's, that's episode one. There's episode one. Thanks for joining us as we delved into terrible things happening to people in the Star Wars universe. Yeah. Oh, man, this was kind of a bummer of an episode, wasn't it? I mean, health and safety is only going to be, huh? Uh, you don't know what to be safe from until you see it go wrong <laughs> oh god um yeah i guess
0: a lot of our research was about like a war and an evil empire so i guess it makes sense that it's kind
1: of a bummer yeah well hey in the future we'll just be looking into apocalypses yeah
0: oh for sure or like supernatural cave horrors yeah easy nope no problem super cash <laughs> well cool hey thanks for tuning in everybody and we'll see you in two weeks hell yeah all right guys bye Bye. Outro song.